Welcome to the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are talking about the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2 and 3, and what the story might really be getting at. So Marty, welcome. Thank you. Take it away. All right. Genesis 2. We're going to pick up where we left off. Verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So right off the bat here, we're going to have problems. And I think we hinted at this last week, but if we're just going to read the Bible, uh, this idea, I'm just going to read the Bible literally. We've run into problems yet again. We had problems in Genesis 1, uh, and now we're having problems too, because these accounts don't, this creation story does not pick up where the last creation story left off. The very best we could do is start this creation story somewhere around day three of the first creation story. But according to the details we just read in that paragraph, uh, they don't overlap correctly as far as the shrubs being there, which are supposed to appear on day three, and man being there, which appears on day six. So these are, on on some level, two different creation stories. Uh, they're about the same creation, but these stories are being told from two different perspectives. And it's always helpful just to to notice our Western tendencies to just want to read this in this chronological fashion. But nevertheless, I digress. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, where... Uh, And there he put a man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden uh, were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's interesting in the uh, Hebrew language there. You read that in the English, and it very seems to clearly read that both trees are in the middle of the garden Uh, And the Hebrew only directly says that the tree of life is in the middle. You can read the Hebrew. I think the Hebrew still implies in a sense that both trees are in the middle. Um, But I bring that up because there is a rabbinic tradition um, that teaches that the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was not. And what's interesting is later in the story when Eve talks to the snake, she's going to say, uh, we can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden referencing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which in this rabbinic tradition, uh, they point out the tree isn't in the middle of the garden, but Eve has made it the middle of her garden, which is an interesting spin. I'm not going to take that. We're not going to talk a whole lot more about that, especially on the podcast, but uh, it is one of the strings of rabbinic tradition that I like. So the, the middle, it says middle of the garden, tree of life. And like, that's one thought. Right. In the Hebrew, those are directly linked. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it could be next to it in the area of the middle of the garden, or it could be somewhere completely different. Correct. The text doesn't actually say. Right. In the Hebrew, you have that kind of um, latitude. Uh, it, It doesn't directly tell us. I think you can assume it on some levels, and yet the Hebrew language gives you that kind of latitude to make that kind of change and observation. Now the Lord God had planted, let's not read that over again. Um, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon 
It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin, onyx, are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So we have this weird paragraph just kind of dropped in the middle here about a bunch of rivers. Well, and they become less and less detailed. Like the first river is like, you know all about it. Right. And then it's like, oh, and then there's the Euphrates. Yeah. The weird kind of fourth river just kind of dropped in there at the end. But yeah, it's kind of a really weird paragraph when you step back and you look at the story. It kind of seems like there's no reason for it being there. When you actually study what it says about those rivers, it makes no sense. One river in the Hebrew is actually flowing in a circle. Uh, it's just it's this weird, nonsensical paragraph that doesn't seem to have anything to do with the story of Adam and Eve. Now, would this be in reference to the, um, what does it say back in verse verse 6, streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground? Uh, well, you might be able to link the two. I think the idea is that rain hasn't fallen yet. The narrator, the narrator is doing that on purpose. Rain has not fallen yet. And so the way that the earth is going to water itself is from underground. I hear it. In addition to that, there are rivers. Um, but I think those rivers are obviously coming from underground as well. So I don't think you're incorrect to think that way. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like this weird paragraph. That may come up later. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Who knows? We'll find out. It's almost like every word is meaningful in some way. Yeah. There for a reason? Weird. All right. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whenever the man called each living creature was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field, which is a really weird, God God says at some point in the story, he looks at Adam and says, it's not good that Adam is alone. And the next thing he does is have him name all the animals. It, it almost, it's this weird, why doesn't God have him name the animals and then make an observation? What an odd job. In, in this story, apparently the naming of the animals has to do with the fact that he's alone or God's incredibly ADD. Like this is, this must be something, there must be something else going on here. But as for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God created the man, uh, caused the man to, ca- to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Um, interesting in the Hebrew, it doesn't actually say rib, uh, it says a round is what it says, which I think in Hebrew you hear, he took a part of the man out. And so this man, uh, his name is Adam, which by the way, Adam means dirt, dust, dirt, earth. Uh, that's what his name literally means is dirt. Um, and we'll come back to that idea. I think in a few lessons, actually, we'll come back to that. But, uh, he creates this man and And then later in the story, when he needs to create his companion, he takes something away from Adam, which is where Adam's going to go when he sees her. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, the way you say uh, male 
in Hebrew is ish. Uh, the way you say female or woman is isha. So she shall be called isha, for she was taken out of ish. So in the Hebrew, you can even hear it in the when you hear that. As we talk about it, you can hear this. There's this interplay. She is directly related to Adam. There's Ish and Isha. And there's this direct correlation. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard within the Christian tradition, the fact that man was made in the image of God, but then woman was taken out of man. Like she's she's so subservient to him. She was taken out of him. He's the amazing creation and she's created. No, it's not at all what's being said. In fact, Genesis 1 told us that in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So she is also a bearer of the divine image. And the the driving point here between Ish and Isha is that Adam was this, this representative of humanity and mankind. And yet there's some kind of tension in the created order. It's not just companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not just companionship. Although... That's a significant part of it. It's also that in order for life to exist and for life to thrive, there has to be a tension. Like that's why loneliness isn't good. There has to be. And so what he does is he makes her, and Genesis is going to call her, we sometimes say helpmate, but that is a really poor idea in the Hebrew. It says etzer konegdo. Etzer is the word for help in the Hebrew. And konegdo literally means against uh, or opposition. She is the help that comes against him or the help that opposes. And so the picture of of the, the isha, the picture of the woman, is that humanity, it wasn't good for humanity to be alone because in order for humanity to thrive, it needs some tension. And so God takes out of ish, a part of him around and he fastens woman, which woman is the part that's now missing in man. Man is now incomplete and woman is that piece of him that he's now missing. Ish and Isha. And so you have this only when male and female are, are together. When life I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm talking about something far larger than that. Only when male and female are together do you see humanity in its fullness. Because if if there's only a bunch of men in the room, you're missing a large piece of humanity. The only male and female together make uh, what we have to be humanity. And so she's the help that opposes. So one of the things that we find in marriage all the time for any of us that have been married is this idea and this concept that the, the woman opposes us, but in her opposition, she is our greatest help. The rabbis talk about two planks. If you can imagine two, like two by fours, resting against each other to form kind of like a pyramid shape. If you take any one of those two by fours away, the plank falls over. But because that plank is opposing the first plank, it stands. And in marriage, because that other person is the part of me that I'm missing, and only together are we the full picture, then it's in the way that they come against our design that they support us. 
And so there's this idea that a woman is just supposed to just blindly submit because the man is the head. And that's not at all what Genesis teaches us. Because Genesis teaches us that she opposes the man. However, she opposes the man in a way that supports him. And there's no, it's not this subservient, there's no plank that stands by itself. Only the two blank, the only the two planks standing together. Uh, but I digress a uh, little tidbit about male and female. Well, and we'll come back to this idea throughout the scriptures in various places. Absolutely. In a lot of ways. So we're not done with the conversation. No, we're not. Um, so that will be, that'll be a big deal. But for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now I have a quick question. Yes. The man leaves his father and mother. Correct. We haven't gotten to it yet, but this seems like it goes against the idea of Badoff. Correct. How does that work? I have a hunch about, uh, and I'll just say I would save that for later. It's going to come back in the New Testament. Um, there definitely seems to be, when most, most literary scholars will look at this, they'll definitely see the narrator, the author, adding a thought into this story. It, it's like you're hearing the story and then the author goes, by the way, it's this reason that man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. But you are correct. In this ancient culture, that's not how it works. In the ancient culture, the woman leaves her family and cleaves to her husband. So this is spoken backwards. There's a couple different ways we could explain that, but uh, we'll try to make sure we come back to that in, say, like a year or two or three. How about that? Fair enough. All right. Good I'll be here. <laughs> the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Okay, now immediately there's another thing that jumps up here. God didn't say don't touch it. So what's going on? Is is the woman adding to God's commands? The, ta- the, the Jewish oral tradition actually teaches uh, that Adam added to God's command because the only way that Eve knows the command that God gave Adam, unless there's some part of the story we're not told about is Adam must have told Eve. And so Eve is either making up additional commandments or Adam has made up a commandment. And if Adam, some of the rabbis teach, if he would have just given her the command as God gave it to her, maybe we wouldn't have had the problem. So this whole idea that's all Eve's fault in Jewish tradition uh, perhaps that question should be raised a whole lot earlier than when she even gets to the tree in the first place. But I digress again. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate and his eyes, uh, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord. God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God came to the man, where are you? He called to the man, excuse me. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. 
And the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Remember, his name means, Adam means earth. Adam named his wife Hava, Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, this man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. So now, as we kind of look at this story, we ought to pause and ask ourselves, do we have, one of the things we did with Genesis chapter one, and one of the things that we're not used to doing in our world is asking ourselves, what are the problems in the story? Like our Western world has taught us to not identify problems. Do not ask questions of the text. Do not ask about that. Resolve the problems as quickly as possible. And yet one of the things we looked about in Genesis 1 is the author is going to intentionally bury treasure inside the story. And the author is going to let you know where that treasure is buried by giving you a treasure map. And those treasure map flags are the things that stick out of the story, the problems that are in the story. And so one of the things that we have to get used to doing that we're not used to doing is asking the question, wait a minute, what are the problems in this story? Because those problems are eventually going to lead us to the questions we ought to be asking to find what the author is really trying to tell us. So Brent, as you read this story, are there any problems that just jump out at you? Well, there's a talking snake. Indeed, which I'm shocked to find how we just very rarely bring that up as a problem in the story. It's just one of the oddest details. Um, There's a rabbi that I'll talk about a lot in Genesis. His name is Rabbi Foreman, Rabbi David Foreman. And he talks about uh, the lullaby effect. When you've heard a story so many times, you no longer pay attention to the details. We have a talking snake in this story. That's weird. Animals don't talk. Like there's one other story in the scriptures in the book of Numbers with a talking donkey. And it also is really striking and odd. Like the whole point of the story is that the donkey shouldn't be talking. In Genesis 2, nobody seems to be surprised about a talking snake. Like this is totally normal. But it's not totally normal. And so that should totally grab our attention. But there's all kinds of other story problems with this story too. Like what else, Brent? Um, Well, you have the fruit. Uh, The woman saw the fruit was good for food. That that seems reasonable. Pleasing to the eye. Okay, yeah. And desirable for gaining wisdom. How does, how does it, how does she see that? Right. Okay. So we'll come back to that one. We're going to let that one hang, but that's a problem because it's this added element. When God made the trees at the beginning of the story, we were told that they were pleasing to the eye and desirable for food. No, excuse me, not desirable. Pleasing to the eye and good for food. 
uh, but then she has this third element that's added in there. So that must, that's weird. Um, do you have any other problems with this story, Brent? Well, I don't know if this one's a problem, but I am intrigued by the thought of the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Oh, that's actually a really good question. I definitely identify with that. The cool yeah. of the day. I'm like, I like to walk in the cool yeah. of the day. Well, there's actually some good stuff about the cool of the day. We won't go there today, but I like that question. Um, I'll give you a few problems with this story that I have. Uh, first of all, they call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Only it's not, apparently. Because Eve has the knowledge of good and evil before she eats of the tree. She's fully aware when she talks to the snake, she's not supposed to eat. So she has a knowledge of good and evil before she eats from the tree. Let alone the fact that if it was a tree of knowledge of good and evil, God has no, um, it would not make any sense. It would not be fair or just for God to punish somebody for eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If it actually bestowed the knowledge of good and evil because they didn't possess the knowledge before they ate of the tree. So you could only punish them for eating from the tree the second time, if it really was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because only then would they have the knowledge they needed to make the choice that they're being punished for. So this tree isn't the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not only that, um, well, the serpent says, if you eat it, you will be like God, which it seems like they are already made in the image of God. Ah, weren't we just told that they were made in the image of God? Like they should already have that. So there's that going on there. What about what about the issue of who's actually lying in this story? What did God say? If you eat of the tree, you will you will die. Yeah, you will surely die, God said. And the snake says, You will not surely die. Now, I know we're used to reading this story over at that lullaby effect, but step back for a moment and tell me if you were in any relationship in our real world, you had two children. And the one children said, oh yeah, that's totally going to happen. And the other child said, no, it's not going to happen. And then when you, when it came to pass, it was like, oh, oh yeah, that's going to happen. But it's going to happen like way later. Like which one is more true? Like you're going to totally feel like the first person duped you. So God has this like really weird stance in the story where the snake, and when you go back and you look at the snake, the snake really doesn't lie. Oh, the snake's like doing all kinds of things with the truth. But God is telling a lot more half-truths in the story than the serpent is. So that's weird. Not only, it, it continues to raise questions for me, because what kind of dad sets up his kids for failure? Like, what kind of sick story is this? Where God's like, okay, you can do anything in the garden you want, just don't touch the tree. It would be like, so I have a son, his name's Zeke, and Zeke has always been just fascinated with swords. Like in, in today's world, it's lightsabers, but when he was younger, it was swords. So maybe not the six-year-old Zeke of today, but the three or four-year-old Zeke of a few years ago uh, just loved knives, swords. Like what kind of dad would I be if I, if I took the knife block from my kitchen and like set it up in the in the living room, whether it was in the middle or over in the corner of the living room. It was like, listen, do whatever you want. Like I'll be around to walk with you in the cool of the day every now and then. But whatever you do, don't touch the knife block. Like this is the oddest story. There's so many problems in this story. Um, and I'll tell you another thing that stands out. Uh, when I start to look at the the structure of the story, I noticed that 
the story starts with, it's not good for man to be alone. I mean, it doesn't start there, but part of the narrative starts there. And then at the end of the story, Adam is essentially banished with Eve. He's not technically alone, but it goes from Adam being alone, which he's really not alone. He has God to Adam being banished from the garden. He kind of ends up being alone again. And then right after, if we go go back where it says it's not good for man to be alone, the very next paragraph is about how God gives him woman, and then he names her woman. And right before Adam is banished, he gives he gives her a name and calls her Eve. So I don't know if you're noticing anything, Brent, but do you notice anything here? Uh, it seems like we're developing a pattern. Ah, and we've seen this pattern in our last podcast. It's called a... Chiasm. Exactly. So we have another chiasm in this story, which is, again, one of those roadmaps and treasure maps the author uses to bury a treasure. And so we have a chiasm. Uh, we have bookends that are Adam being alone and then Adam being banished. Uh, Adam giving her the name woman and Adam giving her the name Eve. And you can actually follow, if you look at this story, it's relatively easy to follow this pattern. Uh, the very next thing we're told about uh, at the top of the story is the snake. The very last thing to happen in the story, the, the story, the story is the snake gets cursed. So it's kind of pretty easy to follow this chiasm. But if you follow the chiasm to the dead center, you find that the center verse of this chiasm is that uh, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. That ends up being the phrase at the center of the poem, which does raise an issue. It's It's an odd center until you think about it. Because when you go back to the story, isn't nakedness a really, really odd, awkward detail of the story? Like, even if you were to go back to when you first heard the story of Adam and Eve, like, isn't one of the most awkward things that stands out about the story is its routine return back to nakedness? Like, of all the things that God wants to tell us about the male and the female is that they were naked and they had no shame. And then... When they eat of the tree, of all the things that could happen, like imagine it, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of all the things that could happen, we're told that their eyes are open and they realize they're naked. And then God comes and says, where are you? And Adam says, well, I hid because I was naked. Like of all the things that Adam needs to tell God right now, he wants to focus on nakedness. And then of all the things God could say, like he could focus on the tree he could fo- his first words are, who told you you were naked? Like, nakedness is this super awkward, it should not be this prominent, and yet this whole story is a story about nakedness. It's just nakedness, nakedness, nakedness. The whole story is about nakedness. It's the weirdest. And so there's something that we have to understand about the Hebrew that you don't hear in the English. It's really not fair because you don't hear it in the English, unfortunately, but you hear it in the Hebrew. The word for naked in the Hebrew is the word arom. Okay, A-R-O-W-M, arom. Later in the story, it's going to turn from naked to nakedness, and the word in the Hebrew is arom, E-R-O-W-M. Naked, arom, nakedness, arom. And then one of the words that you don't hear is in verse 3 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
And the word for crafty in the Hebrew is erum, E-R-U-W-M. That's significant because if you're hearing this story, which of course you were in the ancient world, you're not reading this story. They don't have the printing press. This is not meant to be a read word. It's going to be a heard word, a spoken word. If you hear it, those words come from the same root base. They're almost indistinguishable. You're almost going to have the person have the person telling you the story stop and go, okay, wait a minute, say that again. Did you just say the serpent was the most naked person? No, the most crafty. Oh, okay. They, it's such a similar sounding word that it stands out to you. And then when you look at when you look at the story, you realize that the snake is oddly human. You mentioned what attribute about the snake? He's talking. He's talking. The snake is uh, reasoning. He's having a very logical argument. Uh, so he's not just talking. The snake is also actually quite smart and intelligent. Um, the snake is relating. In fact, the Midrash teaches that the snake is actually trying to usurp Adam's role and marry Eve in order to have children, which is why uh, they say in this tradition, uh, God chooses to put enmity between the two offsprings, but nevertheless. Uh, then there's um, the fact that the snake is walking, which people are like, the snake's not walking. That's ridiculous. If you remember, the curse of the snake is that the snake is going to crawl on its belly, meaning the snake is not crawling on its belly. So the snake is walking, the snake is talking, the snake is reasoning, the snake is relating. This snake is incredibly human, incredibly human. And yet we're told clearly that the snake is a beast. Like the the story makes that incredibly clear. Which raises the question in the story about nakedness, what is the real temptation? What's the temptation that the snake actually issues towards Eve? And the rabbi that I heard this from went back to the statement that the snake starts with. The snake says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And what's interesting is where we put the emphasis in that statement. Because uh, when we read it in the English, I think sometimes we emphasize, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? I think that's where he put the emphasis in the English. Uh, but the rabbi that I learned this from, Rabbi David Foreman, he pointed out in the Hebrew, you can't put the emphasis there. It's impossible because that doesn't exist in the Hebrew. The emphasis, as you read it in the Hebrew, has to lie on the word say. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? Which is an interesting way to hear that phrase and to hear the question being asked. Because if we were to now think about that question again, like let's say somebody were to came to me and say, and say, um, so I heard that the podcast recording went really poorly the other day. Brent said it was just an absolute mess. I would respond with, did Brent really say that? And the assumption of that statement is what, Brent? Well, that seems like a private conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Or that Brent must be lying because that's not at all the truth. Like the, 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 the emphasis, if I say, did Brent really say that? That emphasis changes the statement. The entire tone of the sentence changes that statement to, that's not true at all. The snake's temptation with Eve 
is to put in her mind, God would never have put you in a garden with all these trees if he didn't want you to enjoy it. Now let's pause the story right there for just a moment and ask ourselves, what's the, what is the difference? This snake is looking awfully human and yet the snake is a beast. Why did God have Adam when he said it's not good for Adam to be alone? Why was his first project to do what, Brent? Uh, to find a suitable helper. And had him do... Name the animals. Name the animals. Why was that God's first assignment to Adam? This whole story seems to be about the fact that human beings are not beasts. The snake is not human, even though he looks, walks, talks, reasons, relates. This whole story is about what it means to be human. This whole story is about Adam. It's not good for you to be alone, but you're not an animal. I've got to teach you that you're not an animal. This whole story is about how being human means that you're not an animal. So what is the difference between being a human and an animal that would still work in Genesis 2 and 3? And I think the reasons that we typically come up with no longer work in Genesis 2. Well, to be human means that we have an intellect and an ability to reason. But that doesn't work in Genesis 2 because the snake is reasoning. Well, being human means to relate to other, to have relationship. But that doesn't work because the snake is relating in the story. And and the one thing that sometimes gets pulled up in our study is being human means being made in the what, Brent? In the image of God. In the image of God. And that begs the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? One of the names for God um, that Foreman brought up when he taught this lesson. Uh, one of the names for God that we have is the, the name El Shaddai. We sometimes translate it God Almighty. Um, the problem is, is Shaddai doesn't really translate. It's kind of like this weird word. We don't really know exactly what it comes from. Uh, the best that we had was this idea of Almighty, but it's really not what Shaddai means. So it's this weird word. And Foreman says there's many rabbis throughout the ages that have looked at the consonants of the word Shaddai and said, if those are words, then what that means is the God who knows when to say enough. Like if you were to take the consonants of El Shaddai and turn them into a phrase, El Shaddai means the God who knows when to say enough. Which is interesting because that's exactly the God that we met last week, if you remember. We remembered, uh, we told the story about a God who knew when to stop creating. Six days of creation, and then he, and then he rests, and then he rests. This is a God who knows when to say enough. Because we talked last week about that sculptor making the Michelangelo statue. The sculptor has to know when to stop because if he takes one more swing of the hammer, ruins the whole thing. Well, and I've seen the David, and the like defining feature of it is how large the hands and the feet are. Right, like if you keep doing it, then it doesn't have that. You're going to ruin the entire statue, right? So it's just this, this God is a God who knows. That's the exact lesson we just learned about last week. The God who knows when to say enough. And when God created this garden and he puts Adam and Eve in the middle of it and he places them in this garden, he says, I want you to help, help me take creation somewhere. I've got this good creation loaded with potential. We can do anything we want with it, but I'm going to put this tree in the garden because I need you to know that you're not an animal. You're a human 
and you're made in my image, and I need you to know how to say enough. I need you to know your desires are good. I mean, our desire to eat, that's a good thing. Keeps us alive. Our desire to sleep, that's a good thing. Their desire is not evil. Desire is the part of us. Hey, by the way, Brent, what did you point out about what she saw in the tree? Uh, She said that it is good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. Uh, What was the missing component? The wisdom. Desire. Oh, desire. Right? Desire has all of a sudden entered the story. Desire is this defining mark that finds its way into the story. We have desire at play now. And so we have this God trying to teach his people, you are not a beast. What is the temptation of the snake? The temptation of the snake is, Eve, you're, you're just a beast. You have desires in you. And let me tell you what beasts do when they have desires. Beasts act on their desires every single time. You will never find a beast practice self-restraint. Like you're never going to be out in the woods and find a deer that's out there going, you know what would be good for me today? To just pass on a meal. It'd be good for me. It might shed a few pounds. No, a deer is always going to eat. When a deer is hungry, it eats. When a beast is in mating season, it mates. The defining characteristic of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we are people who know how to harness our creative powers and our desires, just like the God who made us. And so this God is inviting Adam and Eve to the very same invitation that he invited us to last week in the story of creation. He's inviting Adam and Eve to just trust the story. Just trust me, Adam and Eve. Just trust me, Adam. I made this creation good. There's everything that you need. You need to know when to say enough. You need to know when to say, I don't need any more because God's given me everything I need. Don't believe that God is holding out on you. Everything you need is right here. And the snake says, no, of course not. You're just a beast. You're just an animal. Like you're just... You're hungry. You want to eat. That's what you should do. And God's trying to teach his people. I find it interesting. And maybe I can start working towards a, a closing with that. There's so much to talk about here. Oh, man, I just had this crazy thought. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about this. Let me just throw it out there. Okay. So God formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We talked about Ruach. Ruach? Not yet, but we can. I thought we talked about it last week. Maybe. I think you maybe briefly mentioned it. Anyway, Hebrew word, ruach. I can't say it. I can't say it. Okay. Could use that phlegm. Ruach. Uh, anyway, uh, wind, breath, and spirit. Yes. Same word. Correct. So then we have, uh, so the spirit of God is breathed into Adam, and that's how he becomes a living being. Yes. So then later on, we find out that the fruit of the spirit is, among other things, self-control. Oh, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. It's a huge connection. It's one of the most defining. And for me, when I learned about fruits of the spirit, self-control is kind of like that one at the end that kind of gets tagged down to the end here. You kind of forget about it. It doesn't seem like the rest of them, really. No, and it's kind of like one of the most defining fruits of the spirit because that's what makes you most like God is your ability to harness your... And we're not talking about willpower here. Like we're talking about that piece of the divine that resides in you. And it's not about willpower, it's about trust. It's about not letting your desire be the narrative that you're going to listen to. It's about letting God's invitation of you're loved, you're valued, you're accepted, you have everything you need, 
Now, a closing thought about this story. Um, I find it interesting when when Adam gives names to his wife. The first name is Isha, woman. And Isha speaks of who she is. It is her essence. She is the, the piece of me that's now missing. She is Isha. What I find striking is after they've eaten from the tree, after they've eaten from the tree, he names her Hava, Eve, which refers to what she can do. Like in their in their beautiful in their like good pre-fall state, Adam is enamored with who she is. Not what she can produce, not what she's done, not the fact that she's a birthing machine. She's the part of me that's missing. That's who she is. And after the fall, after their eyes are opened, after they experience shame, all of a sudden he becomes enamored with what she can do, as I think every single one of us that has ever experienced shame. And the invitation is still the same. Now, one final one final thing I thought of while we are talking about this. Uh, there's this great, remember the question that God asked? Can you remember the question uh, after Adam says, uh, well, I knew we were naked, so I hid. What does God say next? Uh, is it, what have you done? Nope, that's to, that's to Eve. Where is it? Oh, who told you you were naked? Who, have who t- you eaten from the tree that I can make? Okay, so the first words from? out of God's mouth are, who told you you were naked? Uh, by the way, what was your other question? This is so good, too, about God's question of, where are you? Oh, the um, the word for called is like an interesting word, because up to this point, like God says this. Adam says this, Eve, everybody's saying something, but then you have this whole different word, God called to the man. Right. And, and, and he asks this question that's kind of weird. Does God like not know where they're at? I thought God was God. Does God, is God confused? Does God not know where Adam and Eve are? He's like, where are you? Um, a foreman will go on to teach, uh, in his lessons around this story. There are two Hebrew words for where there's two different ideas for where, where are you? And there, there's a Hebrew word that means, where is this thing? Like, as in, where is it? As in, hey, where did I put my keys? Um, but then there's another Hebrew word that's used here. And it assumes that something is supposed to be there. Meaning, I put my keys right here, and I know that they were right here. Where are they? If that makes any sense. One of them is an inquisitive, where are my keys? I don't know. The other one is, my keys have moved. Where are they? Which is the is what God is asking here. Not a, I don't know where you're at, but Adam and Eve, you're not where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be walking with me in the garden. You're supposed to be by my side. You're not where you're supposed to be. Where are you? And Adam says, well, I hid because I was, na- I was naked. And God's question is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. God says, who told you you were naked? Which I love that question. Because they were naked the whole time, and it wasn't a problem. I created you naked. Why is all of a sudden being naked a bad thing? You were naked before. I love that question. Why have you become ashamed of how I created you? And then your next question, have you eaten from the tree? Uh, Skip Moen uh, has a teaching where he says, God's question really on a larger scale is, what other voices have you been listening to? Like, I created you naked and I told you you were good. 
And now all of a sudden you're ashamed of the very way I created you. What other voices have you been listening to? Which is like this ringing question that I think is a great place to end this podcast. Like we have this, we walk around with so much shame of who we are. And I wonder if God asked the question to us today, why are you ashamed of the very way that I, who told you you were naked? And why is being naked all of a sudden a bad thing? What other voices have you been listening to? And the invitation for us is to not listen to the other voices that tell us to be ashamed of the person we are, because the person we are is the person that God created, made in his image, loved, valued, and accepted. And he invites us just to rest in that. Just join me, Genesis 1, in Sabbath rest. Just trust the story. Just trust me. Trust Genesis 1. Trust it. Don't listen to any other voices. Just trust that you have everything that you need and be fine in your nakedness. Well, and what's also interesting is they they realized they were naked, so they sewed the fig leaves together and they covered themselves. Yes. And they were still ashamed. Absolutely. And what I love, oh, this is just so good. What I love is that God doesn't respond to that by trying to just fix their misconceptions. Like it could just be like, no, guys, really, your nakedness is fine. He, he meets them in their shame and he sews them close. Like, I just love that. Like the first act of God, the rabbis have always taught is an act of benevolence. By the way, the last act of Torah, God buries Moses. So Torah opens and closes with God's benevolent acts. So first two acts of God we see um, interacting with his creation are benevolent acts. But nevertheless, I just love the fact that God hears our shame. He sees our shame and in love, he, he benevolently gives us this comfort. Even though I think in reality, they didn't even need it. And yet he met them and he made them close anyway. Just an incredible part of the story. All right. I think that uh, does it for us. think so. If you live on the Palouse, we hope you join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.